Let us turn together in our copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 1, looking this evening at verses 12 through 14. We'll start with verse 9 for context. Let's bow our heads together in prayer, asking for our Lord's blessing. Father, how sweet it is to gather with the saints of God in Jesus Christ at the end of this Lord's day, the day in which our Savior was raised from the dead, to hear again the reading and preaching of the Word. We ask, O God, that you would have mercy upon this congregation now, that we would hear Jesus Christ himself, the Good Shepherd, speaking in the pages of his Word. Please fill us with your Word and Spirit, O God, and please make our hearts ready to receive the seed of the word, that it would take root in good soil and bear fruit for your glory now and forever. Please fill your preacher with your word and spirit, and may the power of Jesus Christ be perfected in my weakness, that Jesus Christ would be glorified in this place, that he would be all in all. And we ask these things in his blessed name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We come now to the end of Paul's prayer for sanctification, his prayer for the church at Colossae to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is the prayer that Paul began back in verse 9. And again, in a nutshell, this prayer for the church is not so much for circumstances, although that is appropriate in its place. It is a prayer for sanctification, for greater and greater death to sin, and greater and greater walking in and life in holiness. In this prayer, we've seen what Paul prays for in verse 9, that believers would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. We've seen the purpose of this prayer, verse 10, that it would manifest in, that knowledge of God's will would manifest in a new walk, a new lifestyle that is pleasing to the Lord. We saw last time in this prayer what it means to be pleasing to the Lord. We saw those four things from verses 10 through 12 for participles, those I-N-G words in verses 10 through 12 of what it means particularly to live a life that is pleasing to God. So in verse 10, middle of verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, verse 11, being strengthened with all power, and then toward the end of verse 11, with joy giving thanks to the Father. So those four things 
manifest a new walk, are the descriptions of a new lifestyle destined for the new destination of heavenly glory. So the final thing, which brings us to our our passage this evening, the final thing Paul prayed for, the final thing that that, that pleases the Lord there in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father, that is what... That is what concerns us in our sermon this evening. So as we come to the end of this prayer for sanctification, focused specifically on giving thanks to the Father, here we see at the end of this prayer why we give thanks to the Father. What are we thankful to God the Father for? So Paul gives us here three reasons we are to live in gratitude, three reasons why we as his blood-bought children are to live in continual gratitude to our heavenly Father. The first thing Paul mentions there in verse 12 is that the Father has qualified believers for an inheritance. The Father has qualified believers for an inheritance. That's there at the beginning of verse 12, into verse 11, into verse 12, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So the main thing the Father does there in verse 12 is he qualifies. He qualifies believers. That word qualify means to make sufficient, to make worthy, to make meat for something. Now, already, if you have your biblical ears open, if you know yourself as a sinner in need of saving grace, you know that what qualifies you, what makes you sufficient for grace, is nothing in yourself. It is only the Father, by His grace, who qualifies us. In fact, we can put it this way, that as the Father qualifies us for something, for an inheritance, which we'll look at in a moment, the Father qualifies us by grace and for grace. What Paul goes on here at the end of this prayer to amplify what the Father has done, he is explaining the, the aspect of what is pleasing to God in verse 11. So look there again at verse 11. This prayer that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. So, being strengthened with the Father's power according to the glorious might of the Father. The Father manifests his glorious might, his otherworldly power in qualifying hell-deserving sinners for heavenly blessing. Yes, the Father with the Son and the Spirit created all things. The Father in the work of the Son raised the dead to life. Amazingly though, Most amazingly, the Father can qualify those who are hell-deserving for heavenly blessing. This is an expansion of verse 11, that God's glorious might has qualified us for something. So specifically, what has the Father qualified, made us sufficient for? There again in verse 12, he has qualified you, believer, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So we are, we are qualified by grace for this gracious inheritance. There is much Old Testament background here, many Old Testament echoes here, or more importantly, fulfillments here at the end of Paul's prayer of sanctifica- for sanctification here. Inheritance is a very 
important biblical theme, very important aspect of the Christian life. Inheritance has to do with a realm, with a place where God dwells with his people. I don't know if you've seen those paintings of medieval biblical scenes, or that is to say biblical scenes from the medieval era, or of, of manifestations of medieval piety, where there are naked angel babies with wings playing harps on clouds for some reason. Where in the world would that come from? The scriptures. Rather, the, the, the place where God dwells with man is in a real place, not some ethereal blue filter world, but a real place that God has made for dwelling with his people. That is what the inheritance has to do, the new place, the new realm where God will dwell with man. Go back to Genesis chapter 12 and read about how God promised Abram a land, a country. Fast forward to the Exodus, how in the Exodus, um, in, in, the, in the book of Exodus, how God redeemed his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them eventually to the land of Canaan. Now, you, you think about how Paul interprets this in Romans chapter 4, how Paul looks back to what God promised Abraham. God looks back to what the, what the Israelites inherited in the land of Canaan. And he sees these things not as ends in themselves. God has not destined us for one piece of property in the creation. Rather, Paul sees those things as pointers to, as predictors of a new creation, a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. God promised Abram a land, but that land would eventually manifest in the real thing, the new heavens and the new earth. Israel occupied the land of Canaan after God brought them out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm from slavery in Egypt. God brought them to the land of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey. But that was just an earthly foretaste of the true heavenly reality when Jesus Christ will bring in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. This aspect of the Christian life of the inheritance is unpacked further in the book of Hebrews. Keep your finger here in Colossians and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, this hall of faith. Let's look at some of the some of its teaching on, on Abraham in particular. Begin there with me at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose, built, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore." 
These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So do you see just in that quick reading the nature of the inheritance, both for Abraham and the patriarchs and for Israel and for us today? It is not something that is, that is part of this present evil age, subject to decay and death, subject to, to us being cast out of it in exile. It is a heavenly inheritance, a new place, a new realm where God dwells with man in heavenly glory. The land that Abraham would occupy temporarily, the land that Israel would occupy temporarily, was merely an earthly foretaste of the heavenly reality yet to come. None of them entered into that heavenly rest. We have not entered into it yet in fullness either, but we all together, all saints from all ages, will eventually come into the new Canaan, the new heavens and new earth, to be in the heavenly presence of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, turning back to Colossians chapter 1, this inheritance that Paul speaks of in verse 12, it is it is an explanation of what he says earlier in chapter 1, verse 5, of the hope laid up for us in heaven. This heavenly hope, verse 5, is a heavenly inheritance in verse 12. We are awaiting the fullness of it. We, of course, do not live in a, in a new heavens, new earth, where there is no, no more sin, no more death, but we already are members of that heavenly homeland. Think of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. We are now citizens of heaven. We no longer belong to this present evil age, condemned to destruction and qualified by darkness and death. We belong to a new world, the world of heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. Right now, he is new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What does Jesus promise in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit not a land, not Canaan. They shall inherit the earth, a renewed earth, a renewed dwelling place where God will be with his people, a heavenly dwelling where neither moth nor rust can destroy and where thief cannot break in and steal. This is what is in view here in the inheritance, a new realm, a new heavenly destiny where the redeemed will dwell with their God and behold him face to face and enjoy him in the fullness of his glory. Notice also in verse 12, Colossians chapter 1, that having a share in this inheritance is of the saints in light. It is with all the saints, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, and David, all of us here. Well, we often hear in that, in that, old, that old rhyme, to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, now that's a different story. It is a different story here. But one day, to enter into that inheritance, no more strife, no more 
uh, no, no more hardship interpersonally. When we have those resurrection bodies and are fully glorified, there will be that perfect communion of the saints in that heavenly place because we will see our Savior face to face. This is an inheritance for all the saints, not for some, not for a super spiritual group, but for all who trust in the Lord Jesus. Well, with that in mind, moving along to our second point, second thing the Father has done here, second reason to be grateful for the Father, second point, the Father has effected kingdom transfer. The Father has effected kingdom transfer. That's there in verse 13. He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So another reason to give joyful gratitude, to be in joyful thanksgiving to the Father. Here in verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Deliverance and transfer here refer to two sides of the same coin, if you want to think of it that way. No sooner does God deliver us from the domain of darkness than does he transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. No in-between or interim. The one means the other. There is no in-between. To be out of the domain of darkness is to be transferred to Christ's kingdom, which is also true if you do not know Jesus Christ, you are in the domain of darkness. So this, this language here of the Father's deliverance, of his transfer, this has Exodus language written all over it. Just as God redeemed his people Israel, his one nation people at that time, Israel, from the, from the sin and enslaving power of Egypt and led them through the wilderness eventually to the land of Canaan, again, the, the earthly picture of heaven, just as God led that exodus from Egypt to Canaan, God has now done something far greater, a new and better final exodus in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Luke picks up on this. If you look sometime in, the, in, in Luke chapter 9, in his account of the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ, how Peter and James and John ascend with him up that mount. They see for a moment the, the future glory brought back into the present, amazingly supernaturally. The future glory of Jesus Christ shining for a moment. And who is with Christ there on the mount? Moses and Elijah. And Luke records how Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah of his departure, his death and resurrection at the, at, at the end of his earthly ministry. But the word that Luke uses there for Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah about his departure is his exodus. Jesus Christ, for a moment in his humiliation, as he was exalted in the transfiguration, he was speaking supernaturally with Moses and Elijah about his exodus, about his new work of saving grace. What would that conversation with Moses have been like? Moses may have said something to the effect of, yes, God raised me up to, to be a means of his grace, to be an instrument in his hands of, of saving power out of the realm of darkness in Egypt, bringing us as, as if on eagle's wings through the, through the waters of the Red Sea 
to the mount to receive the law, and then all, all the way through the wilderness to our earthly homeland as a picture of heaven in Canaan. But you, Jesus, your exodus will be so much greater. I was a servant in God's house. You, Lord Jesus, are the son over God's house. Your work will be far better, far greater than what God used me to do. Maybe Moses and Jesus had a conversation along those lines on on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this Exodus kind of language Paul uses here, Christ is is effecting, God, God the Father in Christ has effected a greater Exodus. The evil powers and the enslaving powers of Egypt are nothing, as horrible as they were, they are nothing compared to the enslaving power of sin. The enslaving power that binds us all in its, in its grip under the power of the evil one, the devil himself. The powers of Egypt are nothing in compared to that. And therefore, the, the new exodus in Jesus Christ makes the exodus from Egypt look like child's play in comparison. How much better is the work of our Savior Jesus that salvation is no longer in types and shadows as it was with Moses and Elijah, but it has been accomplished fully and finally in his life, death, and resurrection. This language here in verse 12 of the domain of darkness. This is a, a realm, this is a, a world order that is characterized by Satan. It is characterized by evil powers. It is characterized by sin, by and all of sin's consequences, like death. This is, the, the domain of darkness is this present age, this present world order that Adam brought in by his sin and fall in breaking covenant with God. By contrast, the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of Christ there in verse 13, is the opposite of all that. It is a new world order. It is a new realm is a new reality where Satan is not in charge, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who has crushed his head, is in charge. It is a a new reality where evil powers are not at work, but righteousness is at work. Sin and its effects are no longer prevailing in the kingdom of Christ, but the life-giving power of Christ prevails there. One definition of the kingdom, we could put it this way. It is a new world order of life and light where God is enjoyed as supreme for his own sake. Let me me read that again because we need much instruction on the kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is a new world order of life and light where God is enjoyed as supreme for his own sake. Not that we would get things from God but that we would enjoy him as our ultimate, as our blessedness and reward, our treasure now and forever. Think of how Jesus says in the hearing of Pontius Pilate in John 18, why his disciples don't rise up and, and set him free with, with weapons. John 18, 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Therefore, it is of the world to come. Galatians 1.4, Paul talks about how we have received redemption from, deliverance from this present evil age, and therefore have been transferred to the age to come. Matthew 12.28, similar to what, what Paul says here, in the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, the kingdom has come. Remember that context in Matthew 12, 
as Jesus is displaying his kingdom power, his, his power of life over death, his power of, of righteousness over wickedness, of holiness over corruption, of the, the powers of heaven over the powers of hell. That is why he casts out demons. He is showing that the power of the evil one is being broken in his life, death, and resurrection, and he is on the throne instead. He, Jesus Christ, is on the throne instead. In displaying his power over the, the evil one, in casting out demons, Jesus shows that his kingdom has come already in his first coming. Paul says the, the, the exact same thing here, that it is a present reality. It is, a, it is something that has already come, be it invisibly, and it will come in its fullness visibly at the return of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, it is still here presently. Christ has already brought it in his first coming. Now notice here what Paul says about the domain of darkness and contrast that with what we already saw in verse 12. Verse 12, he talks about the inheritance of the saints in light. Then verse 13, he speaks of our deliverance from the domain of darkness. So light and darkness here. The, the inheritance, our heavenly inheritance has to do with light, has to do with being in God's presence, enjoying the presence of God redeemed. Whereas the domain of darkness from which you, the believer, have been delivered, it is a domain of darkness. It was a domain where you were cast away from God's comfortable presence. And if you are in the domain of darkness now, if you have not yet repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, you are in this domain of darkness. You are under the power of sin and the evil one, and that will come to its fullest, fullest expression when God casts you and with the devil and all who serve him into the lake of fire which burns for eternity. You will be cast out of the presence of God on that day. Light represents here nearness to God. Darkness here represents being cast off from his presence. That leads us thirdly and finally to see this evening our, our, our third point, redemption in union with Christ. Redemption in union with Christ. And this is verse 14. Verse 14, speaking of Christ, of the Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we're, we're talking in this prayer about reasons for gratitude, for joyful gratitude to the Father. The Father qualified us for an inheritance. The Father transferred us from darkness to light to, to his, his Son's kingdom. So the focus here is shifted in verse 14 from the Father to the Son, but this, this redemption in Christ, in verse 14, it is still a part of why we give thanks to the Father. The redemption that is in Christ is involved in what the Father has done when he transferred us into Christ's kingdom. So that means then that this redemption that is in the Son is part of the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The nature of Christ's kingdom it is that it is a redemptive reality. Redemption, that is the core, that is the essence of Christ's kingdom. It is a saving reality. And so if you ever hear of well-meaning believers who want to do kingdom work in installing new 
water fountains in the park and making better, uh, better housing or whatever else. As good as those things are, as, 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 the, as the, those things do have their rightful place, kingdom work can be done, those things can be done for God's glory. That can be a part of you manifesting that you belong to Jesus Christ and have been transferred out of the domain of darkness into Christ's kingdom. But it's not kingdom work unless you proclaim Jesus Christ as King and Lord. Any kingdom work that does not proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord is kingdom of the devil work. The nature of Christ's kingdom is that it is a redemptive realm, a redemptive reality. Christ's kingdom is not an ethical coalition of men. It is not a political enterprise to make utopia here on earth or to gradually bring in the new heavens, new earth by our works. It's another sophisticated form of works righteousness. The nature of Christ's kingdom is that it is a supernatural heavenly reality that has broken into time and space that overcomes sin in all its effects. It, it is manifest in making sinners right with God in Jesus Christ, and it will one day manifest itself in fullness when this world age will be transformed and become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, Revelation chapter 11. But for here, for, for now, what is Paul focusing on? What is the one thing he mentions about the nature of Christ's kingdom? It is that in the king, in union with the king Jesus Christ, we have redemption. Jesus Christ has overcome sin. He has overcome its effects. He changes not just man, but man's environment. There, he, he brings in right relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ so that we can dwell in and have have God as our, as our fruition, our blessedness and reward to dwell in his presence. Redemption. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption, verse 14. Redemption basically has to do with release from bondage. That's a nice short little definition of redemption, release from bondage. Redemption has to do with the law. We are redeemed from the law. Not, in, not the moral law to, to follow it as our guide in, in life in covenant with God. We are redeemed from the law as a covenant of works. We do not have to use the law to earn right standing with God, to establish ourselves by works of the law. Paul himself knew this folly before he came to Christ. We are redeemed from that bondage to the law in the sense that we are using it to establish our righteousness and right standing with God. We're redeemed from the law also in its curse. Law-breaking brings in curse. We are in Adam and are liable to, to judgment, to God's wrath and displeasure for all eternity. But in Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. We are set free from that curse and receive heavenly blessing instead. We are also received, uh, redeemed rather as the new covenant church. We are redeemed from the ceremonial law as well. All the types and shadows, all those, those pictures in the old covenant of the tabernacle and temple, of the prophets and priests and kings, of the animal sacrifices, those have all been fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The obedience that the priest was to, was to give in bringing a, a pure offering is fulfilled in the act of obedience of Jesus Christ. 
the offering itself being put to death as a substitute for sinners that is fulfilled in the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. This would take us all night to, to comb through, but all the aspects of the, the types and shadows of the ceremonial law are finished. They are fulfilled and they are superseded by the perfect work of the accomplished redemption that Jesus Christ has brought in his life, death, and resurrection. In that sense, we are redeemed from the law as covenant of works, from its curse, and from the ceremonial aspect. But also, and perhaps more importantly, we have redemption. We have released from sin. We are released from sin's guilt, from sin's power, and one day from sin's presence. The guilt of sin is overcome in the imputation of Christ's righteousness. He received my sin upon himself, and he paid for it in full in my place upon the cross. And in exchange, I receive his perfect record. His righteousness is imputed, is transferred to me. And so I am no longer bound to sin's guilt. I am redeemed from it. Also from sin's enslaving power. This again gets at the the greater Exodus theme we talked about earlier. That just as God with a mighty hand and outstretched arm redeemed his people, they who were helpless and hopeless to do this themselves, redeemed them from the enslaving power of Egypt, brought them through the sea and to, to uh, Sinai to give them his law and to bring them eventually through the wilderness to their, their homeland in Canaan. So God has done something much greater in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not setting us free from a worldly power, but from a supernatural power of sin and death. He has released us from sin's enslaving power. We are no longer bound to its chains. We are set free to live for God, to live for his glory. We are redeemed from sin's power. And then, of course, eventually, as we talked about the inheritance, this heavenly inheritance that we do have now by faith, one day by sight, we will see it and enjoy it in fullness and we'll be redeemed from the very presence of sin, all the effects of sin. No more sickness and death, no more interpersonal conflict as it does happen in the church until Jesus comes back, but full redemption from all of sin and all of sin's effects and consequences. And notice here how Paul gives a definition of of redemption, a description of it. Yes, redemption, taking the whole of Scripture into account, is released from bondage. But you can't talk about redemption unless you talk here in verse 14 about the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of your and my awful sins that a holy, holy, holy God would forgive an unholy people like us, that he would cancel the debt and not hold our sins against us as we deserve, but that he would wipe them away and separate us as far as the east is from the west. This is grace indeed. This is reason to give great joyful gratitude to our heavenly Father. Forgiveness has to do with cancellation, especially cancellation of debt. Have you heard this this myth about the gospel, that the gospel is a legal fiction, especially with justification. You, you Calvinists believe that, that God declares the guilty to be righteous, even though they're not righteous, so God's just making things up? No, it's not legal fiction. God is not turning a blind eye to sin. We are righteous because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are righteous in Christ. 
his righteousness clothing us, which is the reason we are brought into God's presence and can meet him unafraid, can meet him as confident as Christ himself can. And because of that righteousness, because we are in Christ, in Christ's kingdom, a kingdom of redemption, he continues to forgive our sins over and over and over and over. Our awful sins being forgiven constantly as we come to him in faith and repentance. That brings us to to notice something about what the Father has done here in these verses. Notice the tenses of all these words that we looked at. Verse 12, the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance. Qualified. That is a basically a past tense, a completed action. Verse 13, the Father has delivered us and transferred us. Delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his Son. Again, a completed action, something already done. But notice in verse 14, speaking of what God has done in Christ, in whom we have redemption. Not we had redemption back then at some point, but you don't need it anymore. Not we will have redemption, but not yet. We have redemption, present tense. Ongoing redemption, ongoing forgiveness of sins. Aren't you glad that forgiveness applies to you not just for your pre-Christian life, before you came to Christ? You continually have God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You keep sinning. I keep sinning. In the past minute, the, the sins you have committed, you have forgiveness in Jesus Christ because you have a full and free redemption in him, perfectly accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, ongoing forgiveness of sins. All of this, as Paul turns, speaking of the Father, then of the Son, and then we'll see next time, Lord willing, as we we begin that magnificent Christ hymn, Paul is using all of this, even in his prayer for sanctification for the people of God in Colossae and for the people of God from all, all times and places. This is all contrary to what the Colossian heresy, the false teachers, were promoting in those days. Remember, the Colossian heresy is basically, you have Christ, that's, that's good, but you need to add to him. You need to add your works to him. He brought you in on the ground level, you need to add to what he did. You want more of God's presence? Then do what we tell you to do. Follow our legalistic program. What Paul is doing here kills what the Colossian heresy was promoting. You are in Christ's kingdom now, not eventually. You have the inheritance of the saints in light. You are in God's presence now, not when you are a good boy or a good girl. You have redemption now, the forgiveness of sins ongoing. What could you possibly add to the fullness of what Jesus Christ has accomplished? You don't add to him, you draw from him of his infinite redeeming fullness. And so as we close, let me speak to the unbeliever first. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for yourself, all that we have seen here does not apply to you. You have no reason to give thanks to the Father. You have not been qualified to share in in a heavenly inheritance. Your destination is death, 
eternal death, eternal separation from a holy God. You are in the domain of darkness under the enslaving power of sin and the evil one. You have no redemption. All your sins are counted against you. They have not been forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So come to Jesus Christ. Wake up. Open your eyes and come to him as the tax collector did, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you will know the glorious kingdom blessing that we have spoken of here this evening. And finally, for for the believer, think also about another aspect of this inheritance, this kingdom inheritance we've spoken of. That this inheritance is not simply a place, not simply a realm where we are, are with God, not simply gifts from God to be enjoyed by his generous, from, from his generous hand. This inheritance ultimately is God himself. Think of Deuteronomy chapter 10. Before the Israelites got to their, to their earthly destination to Canaan, and God was speaking of the distribution of that inheritance to the different tribes, what was true of the tribe of Levi, the priests? They would not get a share in the land inheritance because the Lord was their inheritance. Who needs a place? Who needs land when you have God himself? Same thing we see in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance forever. And then in Romans 8.17, as Paul gives us that, that reason for suffering in this age, leading to glory in the, in the age to come, we are joint heirs, joint inheritors with Jesus Christ of God himself. We will come to see him. We will come to enjoy him in fullness. No more sin, no more death, none of sin's effects, but simple glorified fellowship, perfect communion with God the Father in God the Son by God the Holy Spirit. And that, to wrap up this prayer, is reason to give joyful gratitude to the Heavenly Father for His amazing grace. May God add His blessing to the preaching of His Word.